Welcome to the Crime Lines monthly bonus episode. If you're listening on Himalaya or Patreon, thank you so much for your support. As I've been getting the show back on its feet after Insight, you're literally the only reason I can afford to make this show. If you're listening on Patreon and wondering if you should switch to Himalaya Plus, I can break it down for you real quick. Himalaya Plus only has one tier. It's just the $3 tier. And with that, you get the day early ad-free episodes plus these bonus episodes. So what you're getting is the same. The only difference right now is that Himalaya is offering a limited number of merch boxes for people who sign up for Crimeline's premium content there. It's about a $30 value, so it's not like it's cheap stickers or cheap magnets like I would mail you. These are so exclusive that I don't even have this merch, and I'm not kidding about that. I do appreciate them offering it because I don't have time to mail 100 packages. The monthly cost is the same. You get the same stuff. You could get this merch box if you're one of the first 100 people. So go check that out if you're interested. Just go to the Himalaya app, search for Crime Lines. There's a button, push it. It's easy. This episode is coming out as soon as I get home from a vacation. I have such a bad track record lately with Patreon not pushing the audio out, and I'm having to re-upload. So I'm afraid to schedule it and then leave only for it not to work. So it's coming out right when I get home, and I'm sure I had a great time on my vacation. I'm going to the Caribbean. I literally get hives from the sun But let's assume getting closer to the equator in the middle of summer is a great idea. Let's get to tonight's case. It is the death of Joshua Maddox. This was researched by Jess, and it's one of those cases that has fascinated me for a while. I knew the broad strokes, and thanks to her help, I was able to dig into it more. So staying on the same theme of some of my recent episodes, like Jalea Davis and DJ Ficky, this is one where the manner of death is in question. This one has the added element that the cause of death is also in question. For those not familiar with the difference with those terms, manner of death means, was it natural death, accident, homicide, suicide? Cause of death is any and all contributing factors to the death, like heart attack, gunshot wound, drug interaction, whatever. I'll give you a quick warning if talk of tight spaces sets off claustrophobia for you, this might not be the best listen. I am just claustrophobic enough that I need to be sedated for MRIs, and I'll admit this one made me a little anxious at some points, so I'll leave it up to you whether you think you need to click out of this one. So with that, let's get started. Joshua was born in March 1990 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He grew up in Woodland Park, which is about a half an hour northwest of Colorado Springs. The name of this city is on the nose. Woodland Park just about describes it. The million-acre Pike National Forest surrounds the town, and this is a bedroom community of about 7,500 people, with most people commuting to Colorado Springs for work. Aside from the Joshua Maddox case, I think Woodland Park is best known for being where the Texas 7 were finally 
taken into custody. And for those who don't know, these were seven Texas inmates who had escaped in December 2000. It was a terrifying month when they were on the loose. Most, if not all, were in prison for violent crimes. They killed a police officer who was responding to a robbery they committed after they escaped. So they were violent and they had nothing left to lose after they killed a police officer. Six were taken into custody and given death sentences. One killed himself before being rearrested. Anyway, that is sadly this city's claim to fame when it's actually a beautiful and quiet little mountain town. Joshua was the youngest of four kids. He had two older sisters named Ruth and Kate and an older brother named Zachary. His parents were divorced and he and his siblings lived with their father. Joshua as a person was a free spirit. He was a joker. One time he put on spare robes and slipped into the Woodland Park High School Choir during a performance in spite of not actually being in the choir. He would wear a top hat to class. He would carry a briefcase instead of a backpack. He marched to the beat of his own drummer, and it was all in fun. People found him funny and likable. It wasn't like any of these things he did were mean-spirited or obnoxious. He was just fun, and he was artistically talented. He was academically gifted. He was really the type of teen you just couldn't help but love. In June of 2006, tragedy struck the Maddox family. Joshua's brother, Zachary, who was 18 at the time, died by suicide the week of his high school graduation. He had struggled with depression for quite some time. Joshua was just two years younger and really looked up to Zachary. This loss was devastating to the entire family, and it absolutely impacted Joshua. But very little of it showed because he still was going to school, getting his good grades, being active, just dealing with his grief the best way he could, and enjoying his life. On Thursday, May 8th, 2008, so nearly two years since his brother's death, Joshua was now 18, and he left to go on a walk this morning. His father had seen him before he went to work, and everything was normal, normal morning conversation. Dad goes off to work. Joshua then said goodbye to his sister Kate because he was heading out for this walk, and all of that was very normal. Walks like this were not unusual for Joshua. He loved any excuse to be outside. Everything seemed very usual, except Joshua didn't come home that night. But his family was not immediately alarmed. I mentioned he was a free spirit, so they thought he was just kind of out doing his own thing. He didn't come home the next day or the next. So his father did call around to some friends after two or three days, and no one had seen him. Joshua had always talked about going away on some grand adventure. He told his family straight out that one day he'd just leave. He would go on this adventure, be on his own, and they probably wouldn't hear from him for a while. So they thought perhaps this was what 
this was. He was going on this adventure. It does sound a bit like Chris McCandless, the man who was the subject of the book Into the Wild. There's also documentaries about him. Chris, though, seemed to be roaming away from something. And his sister later came out and said their parents were abusive and controlling. Joshua, on the other hand, was happy at home. I mean, he was a teenager. There had been a divorce. His brother had died. So there were life things happening. But for the most part, he was happy. He was just restless. He didn't seem like he was fleeing from the house so much as he wanted to see where an adventure would take him. But one thing Chris McCandless did was he planned a little. He made some preparations for this journey, and he took his car. Joshua just left on a walk, taking nothing of substance. On May 13th, five days after he left, they hadn't heard from him. None of his friends had seen him, so the family reported him missing. Friends and family searched the neighborhood and the nearby forest just in the hopes they would see him or some trace of where he went, but they didn't find anything. Even though his family's initial belief was that he left on his own, they were concerned. They were growing concerned. He was 18, so legally, if he wanted to, quote, run away, he could. As the years passed, the family began wondering when Joshua would make contact again. His sister Kate later told the media that she half expected him to show back up with a wife and kids and stories about this multi-year-long adventure he had been on. His father Mike had a little less hope that that is what the outcome would be. He said that for a while, he would assume it was the police or the morgue every time the phone rang. One time there was a John Doe found in New Mexico that they thought might be Joshua, but that was eventually ruled out. So fast forward seven years to early August 2015, there's a cabin about two blocks away from Joshua's home, and it was marked for demolition. The cabin had belonged to the same family for something like 60 years, and the current owner, Chuck Murphy, was in his late 70s, early 80s, but he had barely been to the cabin in years. His brother lived there for about 30 years, but when he died in 2005 or so, no one moved in. Chuck mostly used it for the last decade as a storage building, and it had been a while since he had even gone into it. The main traffic in and out of that cabin were people breaking into it. This isn't uncommon in these areas, to be honest. It happens with vacation cabins with some frequency. Sometimes it's people looking to steal whatever valuables may have been left in the cabin while it's unoccupied. Things like TVs, some people stealing scrap metal. But sometimes it's just the transient population in the area looking for food stores and a place to crash for the night. So this cabin, just picture a log cabin, and that's what I'm talking about. It was in terrible shape. Chuck said it was damp and smelly and mildewy and moldy. Raccoons had gotten in there and left droppings and damage. And raccoons can apparently do a lot of damage. Every time I have a handyman who needs access to my attic space above my garage, they come down and tell me raccoons had been up there. The raccoons were up there 35 years ago. 
And it's still obvious they were there, so much so that people tell me this all the time. And now you know a fun fact about my house. This is clearly why you pay for this premium content. Okay, so back to the actual story. Chuck Murphy was getting up there in years, and he owned a property that was much, much more valuable than the rundown cabin sitting on it. So he decided to develop this property. He was going to clear some of the trees, take out the cabin, and build a 32-home neighborhood. So the day came in the clearing out process that they were taking the cabin. So again, early August 2015. As machinery pulled back the steel that lined the chimney, a body was discovered. A worker on the demo crew saw the body and they all immediately stopped working and called authorities. No need to build suspense. What we all know now that they didn't know at the time is that this was Joshua Maddox. It had been seven years, so the body was largely mummified. To identify him, they narrowed down the list of missing people and then used dental records to confirm identity. Joshua had also lost the tip of a finger in a bicycle accident when he was little, and that also pointed to his identity. Sadly, seven years before, when they were out searching for him on foot, they went by this cabin multiple times. Obviously, they weren't checking chimneys. Joshua was found in the fetal position with his feet down and head up, so towards the chimney opening, and he had one hand by his face. He was wearing a ribbed thermal shirt, and I've seen it said that the rest of his clothing, shoes, socks, pants, so on, were inside the cabin on the hearth. I'm not sure how close they were to the opening of the fireplace. I haven't seen any media source clarify much about the clothes, though some bloggers claim the clothes were found folded. I've not seen a source for that information. Obviously, if they were folded, it indicates someone else was there, but I suspect they were not folded, and we'll get to that later. So one of the first people investigators questioned was Chuck Murphy. I mean, the body of an 18-year-old was found in his home. Investigators had a couple questions for him, but Chuck wasn't able to really provide much enlightenment. He said, the whole cabin stunk. So if Joshua's body was in there on one of his very infrequent trips to the cabin, he may have brushed it off as a dead raccoon. Chuck was asked directly if he checked or did anything with the chimney when he would go up there, and he said he didn't. He was using the place as a storage building, essentially, so he actually had a a big piece of furniture that was blocking the fireplace. And depending on what that was, I've heard different things. It could have possibly blocked a bit of the smell, too, if it was really covering that opening. Though it's also possible Chuck just wasn't up there that first summer that Joshua's body was in there. It was seven years before, and without something notable happening, it was hard for him to remember specific visits. It's also dry air, and this was more of a mummification than a decomposition process like we think of. So Chuck may have entirely missed the period that there was any real smell. Memories are going to be an issue going forward across the board, because what did you do 
on May 8, 2008. It was a Thursday in May, so you could probably narrow it down if you went to work, maybe. Or maybe it's your birthday, and so obviously you remember that. But to just ask a neighbor near the cabin, hey, did you see or hear anything suspicious in May, seven years ago? And of course they're not going to remember, unless it was so out of the ordinary that it burned into their memory. The cabin was visible from the road, and there was a house across the street. But otherwise, there wasn't anyone who really seemed they would be close enough to have seen anything or heard anything, unless they just happened to be looking at the cabin or just happened to be on their porch to hear something immediately when it happened. Because of how odd this was, police didn't really have anywhere to start until they found out from the coroner what happened. How did Joshua die? So this case landed on the desk of Teller County Coroner Al Bourne, and I am 100% sure he wishes it didn't. This was not an easy case. Bourne ruled out natural causes right off the bat. Joshua didn't so happen to have a heart attack in the chimney. And as for suicide, we do have a few stressors in his life. He's now the age his brother was when he died. He was getting ready to graduate high school, which is also when his brother died. This had to have been on his mind at some point. But how could this have been a suicide? There were no weapons around. There was no rope. The only reason to go into a chimney in a suicide would maybe be because he didn't want to be found. He knew how hard it was on his family when Zachary was found. But he lived surrounded by acres and acres and acres of wilderness. He could have just walked off the trail for an hour and no one would have found him. So we have it down to accidental or homicide pretty quickly. The accident theory being that he died while climbing down the chimney, and homicide being that he was killed and then concealed in the chimney. His remains showed no signs of trauma. His bones were intact. There were no signs of knife wounds. There were no bullet wounds. There were no bullets. There was no damage to his skull like you would see in a blunt force trauma to the head case. After seven years, some information was not available, like the condition of his organs in the event he was beaten and that led to his death. But a beating severe enough to kill him that didn't break even one bone seems less likely. Not impossible, but not likely. The other possibilities are something like a poisoning or a hot shot, which is you know, just a toxic mix of drugs, or some type of drug-induced death. The tox screen was inconclusive because of that time that elapsed between death and discovery. On September 28, 2015, the death was ruled an accident. There was no evidence from Joshua's body in the coroner's eyes to support a homicide ruling. He also said there was no evidence at the scene to support a homicide ruling. There was nothing that showed Joshua was restrained. There were no footprints by the fireplace, though those could have been obscured in the seven years of trespassers and raccoons. But there were no signs of blood in the cabin. Nothing that supported the homicide ruling. Bourne also said it would have been very difficult for someone else to have put Joshua up in the chimney. If he was alive, he would have been struggling. If he was unconscious or dead, he would have been dead weight. 
Joshua only weighed 150 pounds, but he was at least six feet tall. So he was a lanky, and it would have been very difficult for anyone to have gotten him into the chimney. And it's very, very unlikely someone pulled him up on the roof and put him down the chimney and did so completely unseen. So what Bourne theorized is that Joshua attempted to use the chimney as a means to get into the cabin. Again, he was really slim, so he may have thought he could fit down there, except he got stuck at some point and he died either from dehydration or exposure while in the chimney. Another possible cause of death would have been positional asphyxiation, and this is when someone's in a position that obstructs their breathing. In this case, this fetal position could have restricted his diaphragm's ability to move. Now, none of these options are pleasant to think about, but as soon as this ruling was released, there was backlash. A lot of people disagreed with it, and some people came forward, who probably could have come forward sooner, saying that they heard someone brag about killing Joshua. And we're going to get back to that in a minute, because first we're going to talk about Chuck Murphy. He owned the cabin. He's one of the people who didn't believe this was an accident. He called the coroner. So the coroner decided to go ahead and take another look at this. He sat down to talk to Chuck about his specific concerns. So here are some of Chuck's concerns. This chimney was an add-on to the cabin, put on about 25 years before while his brother was still living there. So Chuck knows very well the construction of this chimney. At the time, he installed steel rebar on the chimney, on the top of the chimney, and covered it with mesh, like a chicken wire, something similar. And then he had that anchored with bricks. And he did this to keep mostly animals. I don't think he thought so much about people going down there. But he had that up there to keep animals from accessing the cabin through the chimney. Chuck said that this chicken wire, or whatever it was, was there at the time of the demolition, but not this wire or any rebar were found at the scene. It is possible that they had been carted away already, but it's also possible they really weren't there anymore. They could have been at some point, but other vandals tampered with it, Maybe someone stole it for scrap metal. We don't know. Chuck also said there was a wood burner insert in the fireplace. This wasn't an open brick design. So anyone who went down the chimney wouldn't have been able to get into the cabin. And then, of course, the fireplace was also blocked by this big piece of furniture. I'm not sure how this means Joshua wouldn't have gone down because it's unlikely he knew that he wouldn't be able to get out he may have gotten stuck before he even made it that far down. But the main point Chuck was making here is that the chimney was not accessible from the outside for Joshua to climb down. Now, I'm not saying this is the case, but we have to take into consideration that Chuck has an incentive to believe that this was true, that the chimney was inaccessible, and he had a motive to have other people believe it. If it was accessible, he may have worried about liability on his part. A wrongful death suit, basically. These aren't always win or lose. A jury can assign an amount of fault. If the Maddox family sued Chuck and the jury decided Joshua was 90% responsible for his death, but Chuck was 10% responsible for not securing the chimney, 
he could have been on the hook for a lot of money and damages and pain and suffering. This is a bit of a stretch, but Chuck was around for President Reagan's tort reform speeches, and he may have been thinking of some of those examples of why we needed to limit people's ability to collect in the 1980s. And there is a famous tort case that is fairly similar to this one on the surface, and it involved an 18-year-old. His name was Rick Bodine, and he was on the roof of a high school in 1982. He and some of his friends were stealing the spotlights on the roof. He handed one of the lights down to his friends who were waiting on the ground, and he walked across the roof to get to the next one. On the roof was an old glass skylight. The school, instead of removing it and replacing that section of the roof, instead painted over the glass so it looked like a roof. Rick walked across it and he crashed through. He fell 27 feet. He landed on his head and he was unable to speak and he was a quadriplegic. The story goes that he got millions in a lawsuit against the school because in California at the time, criminal conduct did not bar someone from suing. And that's a little true. He did sue. Criminal conduct did not bar someone from suing if they could prove negligence. His attorney argued that the school was negligent to keep the painted over skylight because it was a known risk. Someone else had fallen through a painted over skylight at another California high school just the year before, and that person died. So the school knew, or should have known, that the painted over skylight posed a risk, and they chose to do nothing about it. The school did settle this case with Rick. He was given a couple hundred thousand dollars and $1,500 per month for life that would go towards his care. And if you can imagine what it takes to care for a quadriplegic who needs round-the-clock skilled care, this ruling hardly made his family wealthy. It was hardly millions of dollars. Anyway, that walk down the rabbit hole was just to show that Chuck may not have wanted to take his chances getting sued for not securing his chimney. So let's go back to the other people who were upset about this ruling being an accident. People called the coroner and said that someone had bragged about killing Joshua, and this person they named was Andrew Newman. There is a lot of online chatter about him, and I'm led to believe he has a criminal record spanning multiple states. He lived a transient life after Joshua's death, and he likely had substance abuse and or mental health struggles. There is a lot more out there on him. If you want to go look it up, I recommend going to Reddit, but it's rumor, and I can't find any sources for most of it. Anyway, while Joshua was missing, Andrew was heard saying that he killed Joshua and put him in a hole. Andrew is known to have been friends with Joshua at the time of his death, and people seem to believe that he is both the type to brag about doing something awful that he didn't do, but also completely capable of having done what he said he did. He was investigated. Police do not believe he was in the area at the time Joshua went missing, so they don't think he was involved. However, we don't know exactly when Joshua died. 
I think there's a good argument to be made that it was the day he left for that walk, but it could have been a few days or even weeks later if he had been roaming around on an adventure. Even his family didn't become alarmed for five days. But I think since he was so close to home still, it was very likely within a day or two of when he went missing. Another name came up in the investigation, but the coroner dismissed it, and this name was never released. They just said that this person wasn't large enough to have stuffed Joshua in the chimney. In the end, the coroner went back to that accidental ruling, and the police had to stop investigating. If it was ruled undetermined or homicide, the investigation would have continued. When asked about it directly, the police spokesperson said it's in the coroner's hands. The police can't do anything. Accidental deaths don't keep getting investigated. If there's not a possibility, it will end in criminal charges. So about this theory that Joshua was put into the chimney after death. I mean, it could have just been someone who panicked after Joshua maybe accidentally overdosed But I'm going to point out, there doesn't seem to be any serious drug history for Joshua. He was a teenager in Colorado, and I don't mean to stereotype, but the word is that he was a pot smoker, but nothing more than that. The other idea is that he was murdered in some way that didn't leave marks the coroner would find and then put in the chimney. There was no investigation into if this was even possible, as far as I can see, or how big or strong someone would have had to have been to do it, or if it would have taken two people. I can think of a few ways they could have tried to reenact this safely to see if it was possible, but this was pretty quickly ruled an accident, and the investigation didn't get that far. Chuck had mentioned this wood-burning insert that would have made it impossible to get from the chimney into the cabin. So wouldn't that have also prevented someone from going up into the chimney if they couldn't come down through the chimney? If someone was already dead and not having a pain response telling them that going up the chimney was a bad idea, maybe this was possible, but we don't know. The investigation, like I said, never got that far. So that's the theory about how he possibly went up the chimney. The theory he went down the chimney, chicken wire and all, honestly makes more sense to me. It really does matter if that chimney was blocked with the chicken wire rebar, whatever, or if it was gone, or if Joshua could have removed it. And this is just a question we will never have the answer to. So let's just assume the chimney was not blocked and Joshua could have gotten into it. Why would he go down the chimney? This was a largely abandoned cabin. A crowbar to the door probably would have gotten him in. But I also don't pretend to know why 18-year-olds with a sense of adventure do the things they do. It is one of the most terrifying things about parenting outgoing and curious teenagers, in case you were wondering. They don't always think, what happens if this goes wrong? So one idea about why Joshua did it was that he was with friends and it was just one of those things that seems like a good idea when your friends are egging you on. But this would also mean that when he got stuck, his friends abandoned him and didn't say anything for seven years while his family looked for him. And I could see some dumb kids running at first, panicking, not wanting to get in trouble, but I would have hoped one of them would have gone for help if they could have. It's always possible that Joshua was by himself and he did this just to see if he could. He would have made his way down the chimney pretty easily with his slender frame, but then he got to the bottom 
and hit that wood stove insert and couldn't get out. He realized he had to go back up the chimney to get out, but he couldn't make it up. Going down, thanks to gravity, is a lot easier than going up. It's possible he pulled his foot up to try to get a boost, but being six feet tall in this narrow space and doubling up his length, he may have wedged himself in there and couldn't get out. And then there's also the question of his clothes. He was found wearing only a shirt. Everything waist down was found in the cabin. Now, I don't believe it was folded. That's an odd detail to make it sound like someone was there. Who would kill someone, put them in a chimney, and then fold their clothes? That doesn't make sense. If the clothes were closer to the fireplace, like they fell there, that makes more sense. The elevation of Woodland Park is about 8,400 feet, so it's May. It gets cold at night. When hypothermia becomes advanced, the person actually feels hot and they shed their clothing. It's called paradoxical undressing. So if he was stuck, possibly he couldn't get his shirt off, but maybe he was able to kick off his shoes and his pants. And I actually suspect he may have kicked his shoes off earlier. I don't know if any of you guys have ever rock climbed, but sometimes it's a lot easier, even in a rock climbing gym, to do it without your shoes on. You can get some better traction with your feet and your toes. His pants may have just been loose and fell off as he was struggling. Honestly, this is one where we simply don't have the evidence we need to rule in or out either option, murder or accident. The evidence is gone. Without knowing if there was a cover to the chimney, we can't say it was impossible he went down on his own. And without testing if someone could have fit up the chimney in spite of the insert, we can't say that didn't happen either. Personally, I walked into this thinking this was a huge mystery, but I'm pretty settled on the accidental death. Joshua tried to go down the chimney for no other reason than he was curious to see if he could, and then he couldn't get out. This is so heartbreaking for the family to have lost two sons at the age of 18 when it looked like they had their bright futures ahead of them. And to not have clear answers with Joshua, that has to weigh on them. But they do know he was deceased, and they were able to lay him to rest. And his sister Ruth told the media after he was found, it's not what we wanted, obviously. We wanted him to come home. But at least now we can stop looking. 